Welcome to the special edition of the NACE podcast series. I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, Professor of Family and Community Medicine in the Sydney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University. This is the first of a three-part series focusing on tixagivimab, silgavimab. In this first podcast, we'll give a brief overview of tixagivimab, silgavimab, then discuss the challenges and opportunities in identifying the right patient for pre-exposure prophylaxis for COVID-19 using monoclonal antibodies. In the second part of the series, we'll do a deeper dive into what tixagevimab, silgavimab is, how it works, as well as the clinical data, which we'll touch on today, but we'll go into a deeper dive in the second episode. Then in the third and final episode, and this isn't gonna be till January, so stay tuned. We'll look at the state of the circulating variants and how the characteristics of the variants may affect the effectiveness of the current monoclonal antibody that is being used for pre-exposure prophylaxis. This podcast series is being supported by an educational grant from AstraZeneca. Joining us today to discuss both challenges and opportunities is Dr. Amy Klaus. Dr. Klaus is an associate professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine in the Sydney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University and associate director of the Family Medicine Residency Program at Abington Jefferson Health. Welcome, Dr. Klaus. Thank you, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, a lot of our colleagues in primary care are not very familiar with the concept of pre-exposure prophylaxis for COVID-19 and therefore are not familiar with tixagivimab silgavimab. Tixagivimab silgavimab was approved by the FDA under its emergency use authorization, the EUA, in December of 2021, almost a year ago also not well appreciated was that this October, about not even a month ago, Amy, the CDC added it to the recommendations page for COVID-19 vaccination because they called out the importance of tixagavimab, silgavimab to be used in addition to routine COVID vaccination for people who are immunocompromised. And, And it turns out to be a lot more people than we ordinarily think. So, Let's start by leveling the playing ground and describing what tixagivimab, silgavimab is. So under normal conditions, the receptor binding domain of the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2 binds to ACE2 receptors that exist broadly throughout the human body, but as we know, particularly in the lungs. That's how COVID takes hold in the body. Tixagivimab, silgavimab is a combination of two monoclonal antibodies that are directed at two different parts of the receptor binding domain of the spike protein and block it from binding to the ACE2 receptor. And by so doing, it stops the virus from attaching to the host cells. Amy, does that make sense? You know, it does, Neil. When we normally think about using monoclonal antibodies, particularly for COVID infections, we think about sending someone to an infusion center 
to receive a monoclonal antibody infusion. However, that only lasts for a relatively short period of time, basically while that patient is being treated for that active infection. Tixagivimab, sogavimab, is different though. Can you just explain that? Yeah, Amy. Yeah, first of all, tixagivimab, silgavimab isn't used for treatment. I think we need to really understand that. This is not like the other monoclonal antibodies where uh, we have been used to sending someone to an infusion center when they have COVID-19. That's not what this is. This is used for pre-exposure prophylaxis for COVID in people who might not otherwise respond to vaccination because of their immunocompromised state. We'll, we'll talk a little later about speci more specifically about who that is. But importantly, these antibodies have an extended half-life. So that leads to they get it every six months, but they have a six-month dosing interval because they last a long time in the body. Can you go over, Amy, uh, the major trial of tixagivimab, silgavimab? You know, sure, Neil. That was the PREVENT study. It was published in the New England Journal in June of 2022. Briefly, there were over 5,000 patients who were at an increased risk of an inadequate response to vaccination against COVID-19, an increased risk of exposure to a SARS-CoV-2 infection, or both, and they were randomized to tixagivimab, sogavimab, or placebo. Tixagivimab, sogavimab actually decreased the risk of developing a symptomatic COVID-19 infection by approximately 80%. Impressive, right? And that was with a p-value of less than zero. 0.001. There were five cases of severe or critical COVID-19, and there were two COVID-19-related deaths in the study, but all of those were in the placebo group. So, so clearly the Provent trial showed that uh, the concept of this dual monoclonal antibody works to decrease um, bad outcomes from COVID-19. The EUA was issued almost a year ago. Uh, what patient groups are covered under the emergency use authorization? Well, the EUA is actually fairly vague here. It is for patients who have a moderate to severe immune comp compromise that's due to either a medical condition or receipt of immunosuppressive medications or treatments and may not mount an adequate immune response to a COVID-19 vaccination or for whom that vaccination with any of the available COVID-19 vaccines, according to the approved or authorized schedule, is not recommended, either not recommended due to a history of a severe adverse reaction to the COVID-19 vaccine itself or to any of the vaccine components. So it's useful in people with severe immunocompromise. And it turns out that that's about 3% of the adult uh, population. Any more details to figure out which patients that might be? Well, you know, Neil, I think that's the challenge. Like I said, that authorization is pretty nonspecific. I think that potential people who could benefit would really include um, patients who are those that actively might be on chemotherapy for malignancies, patients taking immunosuppression agents, maybe post a solid organ transplant, patients who are on tumor necrosis factors or TNF blockers or other biologics that could be potentially immunosuppressants, or even our patients who 
are on high-dose steroids for prolonged periods of time. So a fairly large group, but again, it's not entirely clear which patients that those are. It's just not all that clear to me, Neil. Yeah, you know, it's interesting as a clinician, to me, the important thing is that we're aware of this, we're aware of the potential for this to help, and then we have to do what The truth is, Amy, we're used to doing every day, which is dealing with uncertainty and ambiguity and try and sort out as best as we can which patients this applies to. We'll talk in a couple of minutes uh, in a little more detail about how we might do that or what, what, what our approaches are. But the bottom line is, if we're not aware of it, we don't think of it. And once we start thinking of it, we recognize how important it is because for that group of people, and again, I'll emphasize that's about, it's been calculated to be about 3% of the population, that if they don't have some strategy uh, to protect them from COVID-19, the consequences are large. The consequences obviously are landing in the hospital where they would otherwise not need to, dying of COVID where they would otherwise not need to. But even things that you and I might not think about as much because we're, we've begun to live in a world that has opened up, thank God, due to vaccine. But for people who are still struggling with uh, an immunocompromised condition and therefore at high risk, Going going to the supermarket's a big deal. Going to a family wedding or a bar mitzvah. These are real challenges. And this approach allows them to, in a way, re-enter society in a manner similar to, so still being careful, but 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 allow them to have decisions which are consistent with what we're all grappling about as as we re-enter. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes really great sense to me, Neil, because, you know, those of us that have that are immunocompetent and have had our vaccinations are already kind of heading out into society like you talked about. We're going to weddings and maybe going to, you know, restaurants and dining out. But people who are immunocompromised aren't always able to make those decisions. So with Dixagivimab, Sogavimab, they may be able to start venturing out a little bit more and really making those decisions that they haven't been able to before. Yeah. So we talked about the benefit and we talked about some of the ambiguity and uncertainty. Can you share how you operationalize this in the office in the face of that ambiguity? How, 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 how do you implement, how do you decide what to do with this information? Well, you know, Neil, I think about a patient that I talked to last week. You know, she has rheumatoid arthritis She's on one of those biologic immunosuppressant agents that I already talked about. And she, despite having been fully vaccinated, she's had a COVID infection twice in the last two and a half years. And she seems to me to be exactly the kind of patient who may benefit from Tixagivimab, Sogavimab. But because of that vague type of definition uh, from the EUA about whether or not she's immunosuppressed, I'm not really sure. So I referred her back to her rheumatologist to talk to a rheumatologist about this and whether or not it would benefit her. Yeah, that, that's what I've tended to do. And I, I've been a little bit surprised that often, and we shouldn't be surprised, right, Amy, that often in yeah. primary care, we're aware of preventive issues more than some of our subspecialty colleagues, because this prevention of disease falls into our 
our usual rubric of the way we approach things. And I've had a number of patients where similarly, I don't necessarily want to be the one making the call because I'm not sure I can separate out how immunocompromised they are if they fit into this category. But boy, I've had a number of patients where I've referred them back to their oncologist or their rheumatologist and, and some patients who have ended up being prescribed atixagivimab, silgavimab uh, for pre-exposure prophylaxis who otherwise would not have had the opportunity uh, to do so. Uh, can you go over what, how it's given? Some details. Do patients end up, once it is recommended, do they have to go to an infusion center like the case with other monoclonals that we're used to? You know, actually not, Neil. It's actually, it's 300 milligrams of the tixagivimab and then 300 milligrams of the silgavimab that are administered as two consecutive IM injections. So while we have not given it in my office as to date, I don't see it as a problem for offices to be given, whether it's at the specialist office, a you know transplant um, doctor's office, or even here at a primary care office, if a specialist perhaps prescribes it, you know, similar to maybe a um, allergy shot, a Depo-Provera injection, something like that, patient has a prescription, and then we provide that service here at the office. I think it's something that I could foresee us doing again in primary care, as long as we have some guidance from, uh, you know, an oncologist, a rheumatologist, something like that. I would see that something that we're again, like we talked about, the primary care provider. I'm doing that in the future. That makes a lot of sense, Amy. Any other challenges that you might anticipate? Well, I see that probably as two main challenges. And the first one we've already talked about, that's identifying the right patient. That's on us, first of all. It's on us identifying that patient, perhaps referring them back to the specialist. It's also on the specialist who might be taking care of that patient to learn about the tixagivimab, silgavimab, and provide the prescription for the patient. The other challenge, however, is a bit out of our hands and one that we'll have to keep up with. There are a number of circulating variants that have developed. They've developed a change in their spike protein that make the tixagivimab, sogavimab a little bit less effective. A place to go if you want some up-to-the-minute information about the proportion of different variants is the CDC's website. So if you're looking to get some information about that, you can go ahead and type into your um, search engine the CDC COVID data tracker and variant proportions. And that'll bring you right to that information if you really want to try and stay on top of that data in your area to see how this evolves. Yeah, that's a big concern. And we'll have to stay on top of that to, uh, you know, be aware of the degree of immune evasiveness in the variants as they, and that's a continually changing picture. It's interesting, Amy, my understanding is that there are additional monoclonal antibodies that are being developed for pre-exposure prophylaxis that hopefully will work against these new variants. And and that, that work is going on as we speak. Uh, Dr. Amy Klass, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Neil. It's been a pleasure. For the National Association for Continuing Education, that's NACE. I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick. This episode has been sponsored by an educational grant from AstraZeneca. Thanks for joining us. And we look forward to discussing more details about tixagevimab, silgavimab in episodes two and three.